Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Eric Newhouse, author of the new book Faces of Recovery, will again be my guest on Gesundheit with Jacobus this weekend. In March, we talked about PTSD and breaking the moral code. This time, we'll do a recap, after which we discuss the need for forgiveness, repenting, making atonement, and the importance of exercise as therapy. In May, Eric Newhouse will present to the group Mental Health America in Great Falls. But you can hear this interesting and passionate man speak here first, Saturday morning from 8 to 11. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning to the program. I hope you're doing well. Looking outside, you should be doing great. So uh, get out and about, enjoy yourself, and maybe a lot of work to do around the house, something you have been putting off for a little bit. Because of tax season and uh, because of Easter, uh, this may be a great time for you to get out and do some things. Uh, but hopefully you have the radio on at least at 11 o'clock and listen to this program, Gesundheit with Jacobus, where we talk about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles every Saturday morning. And uh, we always invite people to come on the program that have something to do with health, healing, or healthy lifestyles, be it body, mind, or spirit. Today, as you have heard during the promos this week, uh, Eric Newhouse is back, and he will be back again next month in May as he is coming to Great Falls. Uh, maybe we have a chance to chat with him even in Bozeman. Who knows? But uh, be it about May, we are talking to him today as a continuation of the program that we did uh, about a month ago, March 11th, where we talked about breaking the moral code a very important topic because I never thought about it that way until Eric kind of pointed it out to me and then doing his own research and I've been reading about it as well. It is truly a fascinating topic and there are there are ways to heal from this, but first you have to be able to call it by name. First, you have to be able to identify it. And uh, that is one thing that we started doing last time. We will recap the program uh, from uh, March 11th, as in this first segment, and maybe uh, all the way up to 9 o'clock. We don't know yet. Depends how much is coming up. We're talking about mental health here, and we'll, we'll discuss opioids. We'll discuss depression, anxiety, uh, the PTSD. But please uh, keep in mind that we're sharing information, and we're sharing stories, and hopefully give you some education. It's not We're not here to, di- to diagnose, treat, or cure. I always recommend you see a physician or specialist of your choice. Uh, can there be improvements made? Absolutely. Uh, improvements can always be made in the medical world, in the medical profession. And uh, we hope that that will always be focused on the well-being of the patient, uh, not on the well-being of the pharmaceutical companies or the medical device companies that uh, who charge all a lot of money. So, um, well, money is important. That's fine. But uh, it seems that we are pricing our own healthcare 
way out there and uh, we just cannot afford it anymore. So something needs to change. And I always feel that with this program, I focus on changing within yourself. What can you do if you're interested? And I feel many people listen to the program are interested in changing something within themselves, be it the body, mind, or spirit. So hopefully you'll find some nuggets today when Eric is talking to you and sharing stories of success and pain, and that you will find inspiration to indeed go to work for yourself and do that on a daily basis. It's not how you're going to feel tomorrow. It would be great if everything would be gone tomorrow, but it comes down to if you and I reconvene uh, next year, April 22nd, then how will you feel better? How much better do you feel in, in your mind, in your, in your gut, in your heart, uh, in the way you deal with other people, in your physical body? How are you able to improve that? If you look at life as a journey and not as a sprint, then I think we are on the right track because that is really, we're trying to, in here for, we're trying to be in here for the long haul. And that is also, you know, we have a reason to be here on the planet and we have things to do and people to meet and responsibilities. So hopefully we are going to enjoy that all together. Eric Newhouse, and I don't want to wait too long to in, reintroduce him to you, Eric Newhouse has earned his reputation as a crusading journalist, winning a Pulitzer Prize in the year 2000 for a year-long stories of, uh, about alcoholism, and it all had to do about Great Falls, Montana, where he lived for quite a while. Through personal in-depth interviews, he has seen the devastation caused by PTSD from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the ongoing trauma for veterans from Vietnam and other American conflicts. Newhouse's crusaders get young, get uh, excuse me. Newhouse's crusade is to get the young men and women who have served their country on the battlefields the help that they need and deserve. Eric Newhouse has been a journalist for over 45 years. The first half of his career was as a reporter, correspondent, and bureau chief for the Associated Press working in Baltimore, New Orleans, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Pierre, South Dakota, St. Louis, and Charleston, West Virginia. The second half of his career has been with the Great Falls Tribune. Now, Mind you, he was raised by two uh, journalist writers. His, both his mom and his dad were in the writing field and in the journalism field. He now resides in West Virginia to be closer to his family. Now, Eric's publisher, Idle Arbor, has pledged to send a free copy of his book, Faces of Combat, to a veteran of foreign war post or a VA VATS center for each copy that he sells that has the potential of getting more of his books into the hands of vets who need to read them. Uh, he, his upcoming book, So the Faces of Combat, came out uh, quite a few years ago, about seven years or so ago. He also has an upcoming book uh, we're waiting for the release date. It's called Faces of Recovery, which is primarily what we're going to be talking about today, about that process. And Eric has also been invited to speak to the group Mental Health America in Great Falls on May 18. At the Country Club. And if you want to learn more about Eric, go to ericnewhouse.com. Ericnewhouse.com. Eric, I'm sorry for the long introduction, my friend, but it's great to have you back on the program. Well, Jacobus, it's a pleasure to be here. Good morning to you and good morning to Montana. Yeah, I'm glad Montana. I think Montana would love to hear you again because uh, I get always great comments when you are on the show. 
not only myself, I love it, I, uh, but I, I get great comments as well. Well, that's great. I always enjoy it. Thank you. Well, we, uh, we said let's recap a little bit about what we talked about last time. Yeah, we were talking about moral injury. Uh, and I was explaining that the med- medical profession doesn't really believe that it's part of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it's not diagnosed that way, but I contend that it ought to be because uh, uh, it, it is a uh, a form of, of uh, mental illness that, that uh, we really need to recognize, number one, and we need to provide treatment for it, number two. Right. And the treatment for it uh, is very different than for traditional PTSD. Yeah. And we're going to spend uh, much of this couple of hours uh, discussing that. But moral injury essentially um, comes in two forms. One of them uh, is, <clears throat> well, traditional PTA, PTSD is what others are trying to do to you, which is they're trying to kill you and right. you're trying to stay alive. Um, but moral injury is not what others are doing to you. It's what you are doing to them uh, or what you are failing to do for your friends. Uh, and both of those are, are very significant. Um, there's also a, a third form, and that is uh, when you are betrayed by your country, by your chain of command, by your buddies, uh, and that has a... A tremendous psychological effect on uh, on, vet, on soldiers and on vets. I think about uh, <clears throat> my friend Mike Orban, uh, and Mike is a Vietnam vet. Uh, he told me that he went to uh, well, he he served in Nam uh, and went through all the usual battlefield experiences. But then he told me that he was out in a forest where nobody was supposed to be. It was a uh, it was a no man's land. Yeah. And he saw two men standing uh, in a clearing. He was convinced that they were soldiers. They had no right or reason to be there. So he shot and killed them both. Uh, and then went back, uh, searched them uh, for weapons. Discovered no weapons. Discovered no indication that they were uh, military personnel at all. Uh, and realized that he <clears throat> killed two innocent farmers. Yeah, um, that haunted him uh, really for the rest rest of his career. And it's that kind of injury that I'm now talking about. Yeah. So the the third one that you said you called uh, feeling misguided is that what you say? Uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, feeling betrayed. Betrayed. Sorry. Thank yeah. you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a big one. Um, yeah, I, I think Eric, the stories that are coming back, once you started using these terms, the moral injury and the feeling betrayed, all of a sudden you start indeed compartmentalizing these, uh, issues. When you talk with veterans, they are able to identify with that and say, you know, you are right. It is really what I feel about what I have done, what I was not able to to do for my comrades the way I uh, went gung-ho into a situation, not realizing what the outcome was, not thinking it through, but just going for it. And, And part of that is the training, part of that is how the brain works, and part of that is 
in, in spite of the fact that we have the best trained military in the world, it doesn't mean that everybody feels the same way because we're all raised the same. Uh, we're all raised differently. So we have certain moral values that we're raised with. We do, and and I think you mentioned that in the last show that there is primarily two groups that always participate in the military, and that is the two P's: the the people with poverty and those with patriotism. Yeah, yes, and both of those groups uh, are predisposed uh, to be particularly vulnerable to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, that's because uh, yeah, the kids who were raised in the slums uh, are more likely to have seen violence, experienced it, um, uh, failed to prevent it um, in others. Uh, and those who come from super patriotic families are, are quite likely uh, to have dads who were World War, who are Vietnam vets and wake up in the middle of the night screaming uh, with night terrors, or grandfathers who served in World War II uh, and who also came home with PTSD, although the prevalence of PTSD among World War I and World War II vets, uh, yeah. I think, is much less than uh, it is among Vietnam vets uh, and among uh, Iraqi Afghan vets. Do you have any un understanding why that is from, from your research? Yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> if you look at uh, uh, at World War I, uh, Exactly a hundred years ago, we were yeah. fighting World War One, um, but we were brought into it because the Germans uh, had submarines that were sinking our ships and killing our people. So it was a defensive war. World War Two was the same. We uh, entered that war because Pearl Harbor was attacked. But fifty years ago, we were fighting in Vietnam, and uh, a lot of us could not see any reason why we were there. It was an offensive war. We were intervening in basically a civil war. Yeah. And uh, American kids were being killed. They came back. Um, a lot of the vets that I talked to uh, questioned whether we ever should have been there in the first place. Right. Uh, now we're in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have about as many uh, uh, Iraqi Afghan vets now as we have living Vietnam vets. The Nam vets are all saying, uh, "What did we fail to learn in hmm. Vietnam? Why are we Why are we there now?" And that's a valid question. Yeah, uh, there well, was nine eleven, but yeah, there never has been any proof uh, that we <clears throat> that we uh, uh, yeah that Iraq, for instance, uh, was involved in nine eleven, uh, and so it, the whole question of why we went to war, plus uh, the, uh, the lie about weapons of mass destruction. Uh, that leaves a lot of people who are fighting, uh, fighting in their own minds for justification for what they're doing. And that's, that's a terrible sense if you're out there killing people uh, to avoid being killed. But knowing that there's no reason for you to be there, there's no reason uh, for you to be killing people, that's a moral injury. Hmm. Well, I think the other uh, the thing what I would like to add to that is that if we look at history, we haven't really learned from the Afghanistan-Soviet Union uh, uh, conflict whereby mm -hmm. the Soviets finally retreated because they, sure. could, they couldn't find the Taliban at the time. And, yeah. and oh, the Mujahideen, I think is what it was called then. 
Mm-hmm. And so you you were dealing with uh, now. I didn't know until that uh, the mother of all bombs uh, dropped on that uh, on all those tunnels in Afghanistan, Pakistan area. That yep. I wasn't aware that it was so intense. How many tunnels were built, and that was probably the way that uh, the uh, the Afghan people were fighting wars. Uh, they would just show up at different positions and be able to retreat before you find them. Uh, and then go somewhere else and attack you again. So we haven't really learned from that guerrilla-type war because we are a very organized army, and I I think that uh, that has also caused quite a bit of damage to our soldiers and the morale of the soldiers because we're fighting a war against people who are, uh, they have nothing to lose because they have nothing. That's right, uh, and they believe that they're defending their country, uh, yeah. the, the worthy aggressors, uh, and they... Uh, yeah, they they are sincerely motivated to take us out. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to learn from this, and you hope at some point that we are trying to that we learn to understand how these people work. And I'm sure there is a lot of military ops going on right now that are very secretive, and there's probably something uh, that that is getting done. But uh, you know, it's um, still too many people are dying. And we sometimes have to wonder uh, exactly why. Of course, now we're, we're, we're because we're fighting more a guerrilla war and a terrorism war. I think that the uh, we're trying to uh, wrap our hand, heads around that and say, you know, how are these people thinking, and uh, what can we find out? How we can stop it? And uh, but it is very different than when you have two armies facing each other and going at it. And that is a, that does, just doesn't happen anymore in these wars. Remember that uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, ultimately found hiding in a hole. Yes, yes, and that—that's just the way that war has been going. Yeah. What What do you call the uh, Korean War? Because we often call it the Forgotten War. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. Uh, again, I think that that was right midway between World War Two and. Uh, and yeah. Vietnam, yeah, exactly. and we were we were struggling to come to terms with it. I know that uh, at the outset of World War II, uh, there was a lot of isolationistic uh, feeling. A lot of people uh, didn't want to get sucked into uh, World War II. But ultimately, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, went to Congress and <clears throat> said, uh, I need authorization to protect our, our ships and our lives. And uh, so he got it, and we did enter World War II. Korea was a different thing entirely. Um, I, I don't remember any justification for our being there, uh, other than to stop uh, communism, yeah. which is a, a a nice abstract phrase, but it it isn't really uh, uh, a defensive war. And I think no, yeah, a bunch of our folks were troubled by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Eric Newhouse is my guest today, Pulitzer Prize-winning author from a book that he wrote in uh, the year 1999. It's called, uh, uh, he got the Pulitzer Prize in 2000, called Alcohol, Cradle to Grave. After that, he published the book uh, Faces of Combat, PTSD and Traumatic Brain Injury. We have discussed that a few times in the past. Now we are dealing with the next book that is coming out very soon. It's called Faces of Recovery. 
and how do we deal with the healing? What kind of healing are we looking for for our military vets and um, the the pain and the sorrow that is bestowed that is actually befallen upon them because of the uh, the trauma that they have experienced, and that can be all kinds. So, so we talked about the PTSD. We talk about moral injury. And also, as Eric mentions, number three, feeling betrayed. And uh, there, has, there is healing possible. We're going to discuss that today. It will include uh, the, the atonement, repentance, forgiveness, exercise, and uh, a few others. That writing is another very good healing form. So there are definitely ways to do that. I hope to uh, introduce you also to some thoughts to fight it with uh, nutrition and, and possible supplements to at least find some type of healing, to start the healing process, to accelerate the healing process. But uh, the suggestions that Eric has will really help us to get insight. I think it is important that when we are dealing with anything that has to do with health, we first have to be able to give it a name. We have to be able to identify it. We have to say what it is. Once we have that, then we can say, okay, now exactly what are the details and then when we have the details, we're able to say how we can take this apart and start healing that process or start the healing process because of how these little aspects, these specialty parts are affecting us individually. Is that fair to say, Eric? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to jump in on that one. Yeah. Um, one of the main problems uh, that we have with vets in particular is that they're unable to talk about what they've been through. And the reason that they're unable to talk about what they've been through uh, is because uh, a traumatized brain um, operates very differently from a normal brain. The brain that's traumatized uh, reverts to the amygdala, the uh, uh, mammalian uh, fight-or-flight center, uh, and the whole prefrontal cortex shuts down. Part of what's shutting down is called a Broca's area, B-R-O-C-A, and that is the area where language is formed. When that shuts down, vets can't really talk about what they've been through. You'll hear them say things like, I don't have words to describe what what I went through. Uh, And that's why writing is so important. When they can't talk about it, if they can write about it, they can begin to name it and begin to process it. We're going to take a break, Eric. That's fine. We'll be right back, folks. Stay tuned, please. (laughs) Thank you. Good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program today. What's your name, please? How can we help you? This is 73. Yes. Uh, Day you were born, huh? Yeah, last Saturday was my 73rd birthday. Hey, Daniel, Uh, congratulations. So Vietnam experience was in my era, but of all things, was a topic on aging, and I had aged so much that day that all I could do is sit on my sick bed and nibble on some soft food. I was in too much pain to even talk. You mean last uh, week? At least I could wobble over to the radio on my walker and listen. Huh. And the, the lesson I got from this real experience, except that I, I'm not using walker, is that I, I shouldn't be so judgmental. Uh, when I see people limp by and with their outbreaks and conditions, I should stop whispering myself, Oh, he didn't eat enough such and such or take enough supplements. It was a learning experience. Mm. Now, your question, along with forgiveness and those other ones, is there a psychological weakness of being too judgmental 
wrapped up in the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder package? Have you tried to think about how us brothers in Vietnam were being judgmental of each other? The ones that went, uh, they, we were cowards that stayed, and the ones that stayed, they said they were fools for being cannon fodder, as the word is. Yeah, there is a judgmental problem, uh, and it goes even beyond that. Uh, it goes into uh, uh, condemning yourself for what you've done, uh, being too judgmental with yourself, and that's something that we all need to learn to overcome. What do you think, Daniel? Well, yeah, there's something to ponder, the, the whole experience from the 60s to this time. Judgmentalism is something, yeah, I got arrested for protesting in Vietnam War, so I, I sometimes feel kind of high on my uh, hog, but really I got to go over there in the corner and stare at the wall for a while. Well, you know, what I, what I want to say is interesting, Daniel. Uh, you have uh, called quite a few times over the years, a lot, actually, but quite a few times you have also discussed the issue of uh, food, and you have criticized other people for what they put into their mouth. And obviously you could say, well, do, am I critical of myself? Well, I know that you are definitely more disciplined in your eating habits, and but I also hear what you're saying that all of a sudden here you are on your 73rd birthday and uh, you start feeling sick and you say, wow, you know, sometimes these kind of issues happen very quickly, uh, something we didn't see coming. And so that it is a humbling experience. And I agree with that. But at the same time, you are not the one who is eating all the sugar and all the hydrogenated oils and all that stuff. But so it is simply you have found an outlet outlet to criticize somebody but that doesn't reflect back on you as far as that specific criticism. But there is still a lot of self-criticism on other areas. And it comes out sideways by by picking something that you see happening around you and you just feel you need to criticize it. Do you understand what I'm saying with that? Uh, yeah, I've grappled with this idea of you got to love yourself. Uh, some people, are, I might think that being uh, too... Uh, greedy or something, but uh, there is that factor that uh, you got to love your, your real self. Yeah, and I think that what you have probably learned from listening to all these shows is that uh, there are so many people who have a story to tell, and so many people share, and sometimes it is good that you, you can totally be uh, without an agenda, literally listen to somebody's story, and listen to how their life has gone, or what they have just experienced. And I think that also the soldiers who are coming back, they all have their own experiences that, like Eric was saying at the end of the last segment, they all of a sudden cannot put it back into words. And so to, to, to give people a chance to put life, to put life experiences and to put trauma into words is something that they need to find somebody who will listen to them. And so somebody like yourself and myself and Eric are now available for people to talk to because we will simply listen to their story. Let them, let them share the story. Actually, there's a VA program uh, in Milwaukee run by, uh, I'm sorry, Madison, Wisconsin, run by a, a VA psychologist called Thor Ringler. And uh, it's called My Life, My Story. And it's basically uh, getting life histories uh, of the vets who are patients there um, writing them down and circulating them among the uh, VA doctors and nurses so that they can know who the uh, who their patients are. It's a, a, a great program because it validates uh, the vets 
that validates what they've been through. And uh, it also educates the doctors and nurses about uh, what the patients are, uh, what they're undergoing, and what they've experienced. So I'm hopeful that the uh, VA will use that as a model program and put it uh, into use in other parts of the country. Yeah, here, here's another stinker that is in our life called depression. I've never been really depressed, but I, I see people that get depressed, and it, it's such a foreign language. Does this writing things out help with depression, or are you still pretty dependent on psychoactive drugs? Oh, the uh, the drugs, uh, I stay away from uh, as much as I can. Uh, writing uh, is a nice way of... Uh, dealing with depression, but there's an even better way, uh, and that is uh, exercise. Uh, If you get out uh, and you are basically exercising strenuously, uh, there are two things that happen. One is that uh, you are overlaying some bad memories with some good memories, something like wet water rafting, for instance, which is uh, is a uh, high-adrenaline activity. Uh, you can uh, you can overlay some of the combat experiences uh, with uh, with good river memories uh, of activity uh, of uh, camaraderie uh, and it's it's uh, the second thing that exercise does for you uh, is it triggers something called neurogenesis uh, and when you are developing new neurons in your brain. Um, that tends to relieve a lot of anxiety. Uh, And so active exercise uh, actually makes you feel much less depressed. Mm. Yeah, not to spend too much time on myself, but there was an accidental uh, good choice that I made because I did get a degree in college, but then I went into manual labor. I mean, I worked at the docks. I put roofs on, dug ditches, so that that's exercise, too, so that might have made me feel... Uh, mm-hmm. I also kind of cleared the marijuana out of my system, too, uh, because I, <laughs> I smoked a lot of marijuana and did a certain amount of other drugs, 200 LSD trips. Ooh. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, I think you the exercise counted. that you had uh, manually was, uh, it was very therapeutic for you. Well, Daniel, thank Absolutely. you so much. Okay, you, thanks. You Eric, one of the things you you we touched on in the first segment was that third part of the trauma that soldiers are experiencing, which is that feeling of betrayal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still uh, trying to wrap my head around it. Can you highlight that a little bit more for us? Yeah, I've got a friend named Bill Edmonds. Bill is a lieutenant colonel. Uh, he's currently serving in the Pentagon. Um, but he was sent over, uh, he's a special forces guy, and he was sent over to Iraq to supervise interrogators uh, in Mosul. Uh, when he got there, he discovered that the uh, interrogators uh, were just bringing people in right and left uh, and uh, abusing them pretty badly. Uh, the idea was if they tortured them a little bit, uh, they'd betray somebody else, and then they'd go uh, pull that person in. Bill was offended by that and told him uh, that that they could not physically uh, harm uh, somebody that they were interrogating. Couldn't slap him, couldn't uh, beat him, couldn't, you know, all the things that the Iraqis were inclined to do. 
uh, they fought with him on that, uh, and he had a, a really terrible time. Finally, one day, uh, they slapped uh, a prisoner in his presence. He realized it was a direct challenge. He turned his back and walked out, uh, never went back, uh, and so he never was able to uh, uh, monitor what they were actually doing there and felt terribly guilty about it. Then, a little later, he uh, discovered that in one of the prisons, uh, there were 14 supposed insurgents uh, missing, and he tracked them down, basically, and discovered that they'd been transferred to another prison. They'd all been pretty badly abused. They were... uh, they were beaten, uh, they'd been electrocuted, uh, they'd been whipped, uh, they'd, just, they'd been through the, uh, the ringer. He sat on that for several months because he didn't know what to do and felt guilty about it. Finally, he uh, reported it up his chain of command. They, the Army launched a, uh, uh, an investigation and uh, completely exonerated uh, all the parties involved. Huh. He felt enormously betrayed by that. Yeah. He uh, went to see the mental health people um, because he he just was uh, unable to sleep. He was unable to function. He was in, unable to, to work. He just couldn't do anything. And so he went and talked to a, a doc. This was a couple years later. And uh, the psychologist told him, asked him, uh, had he ever been in combat? No, he hadn't. Had he ever been shot at? No, he hadn't. Huh. Uh, and the counselor said, well, it's not PTSD. I don't know what it is you've got, but here's some medicine. Uh, get a grip on it. So mm. he went home, and mm. he uh, uh, was another one who was unable to talk about what he'd been through. But he began getting up at about 3 o'clock in the morning while his wife and kids were still asleep. He'd go down to the kitchen table um, before dawn with a legal pad and sit and write down what had happened to him and why he was feeling the way he was feeling. It was uh, enormously therapeutic, uh, and that really, really uh, became his cure. Uh, Then by way of atonement to let others know what he had been through and what the system had put him through. Uh, He had that uh, manuscript published as a book, which is called God is Not Here. It's uh, a remarkable book. It's just gut-wrenching and soul-searching, but it did what it needed to do because he uh, was able to look at Uh, at the whole institution of enhanced interrogation, which is to say torture, and brand it for what it was uh, and conclude that that really is not the way that he was brought up. It was not the way Americans are brought up. And so uh, it, it is an example of, number one, betrayal, number two, moral injury, uh, and number three, uh, writing as effective therapy. I see. Hmm. Yeah, that is, uh, wow. And yeah. Did you say that Bill was working in Washington, in the Pentagon? Yeah. Yep, he's at the Pentagon in, in Washington, D.C. these days. 
So has that been a, a, a conflict for for him or for the people he's working with that he has had these feelings about how the military operates at times? I've been amazed that he was able to publish that book and still stay in the Army. Yeah. But uh, he says at the outset, uh, this is a personal story. It doesn't reflect the views of the American military, but it's my story, and they uh, they allowed him to publish it and to remain in the service. And so I'm a little surprised, but it's, I think, a good sign. It is how throughout history, uh, shock and awe in the military has been a um, has been used a lot from mm-hmm. very early times on. Uh, even though times have changed, I think that this type of uh, abuse, let's call it that way, or uh, you know, of prisoners, mm-hmm. is a continuation of that. But it happens more behind closed doors where. Uh, many times it was done more in public to uh, to to put down the, uh, the 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 people who were watching it. You know the 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 the, the civilians, so to say. Mm-hmm. And so there is a difference there. But it seems like that is how the American Army does it. We I think I have a feeling we're doing it more behind closed doors, trying to get the information that we need uh, mm-hmm. that the military says we need. Whereas you see that uh, the 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 armies we are fighting right now, if you can call it armies, but the the terrorist organization that we're fighting right now, uh, they love to do it in public. They're trying to intimidate uh, the civilians and put the scare into into them. So there is it. It's a similar way of using uh, of abusing, uh, if you can call it that way, because there is definitely physical harm done and mental harm. But it's uh, there are definitely different ways of operating. Jacobus, do we have time for another uh, Please. Uh, example of betrayal? Yeah, yeah, we have about another six minutes. Oh, great. We're good then. Yeah. I talked with a uh, psychologist in Milwaukee, uh, a woman named Jennifer Sluga, and Jennifer told me the story of, uh, of what had happened to her. She and a, uh, She's a member of the Wisconsin National Guard. She and one of her female... Uh, um, recruits were uh, going through boot camp, and both of them were exhausted. Both of them uh, were feeling uh, just awful. They reported to sick call one day, and uh, uh, the doctor took her into uh, a private examining room uh, and began to examine her a, a little more closely than she felt comfortable with. He managed to get her out of much of her clothing, and she realized that this was not an examination. Yeah, this was sexual assault. Wow. And so she grabbed what clothes she could, uh, ran out of the uh, office, ran back to her barracks, um, and uh, tried to take a shower because she felt dirty and, and uh, uh, she was crying. One of her fellow soldiers saw her, saw the marks on her body, and uh, immediately called a drill sergeant. Uh, ultimately, the uh, the doctor was charged uh, with sexual assault, and uh, uh, he was he finally admitted uh, abusing uh, something like seventy patients. Wow! But in this case, uh, this this is betrayal because she was betrayed by uh, I think uh, the doctor was a colonel, and oh. it, it, you know it, it became 
military sexual assault, which is now so common that we even uh, refer to it by MST, an acronym, which which suggests that it's out there quite a bit. Um, but that kind of betrayal uh, is, uh, I think, is common. Uh, if you look at uh, MST itself, that it is a form of betrayal. Uh, you are being abused by somebody that uh, you should trust. Correct. Uh, it may be a superior officer. Uh, it may be uh, fellow soldiers, uh, the people who are supposed to watch your back. And uh, instead, they're they're groping you. Yeah. So yeah. that, uh, that yeah. whole thing about the military sexual trauma, I contend, uh, is another form of moral injury. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is really, uh, yeah, that can be very intense. And exactly like you said, many times these soldiers are 19, 18, 20. And mm-hmm. then by that time, by the time you're a colonel, you're probably in your 40s. Yeah. So there is already a, a father figure or a mother figure. And mm-hmm. then you uh, you don't want to speak up against the older person. You don't want to speak out against the uh, the higher rank. And mm-hmm. here you are being betrayed. Boy. That's a tough one. Yeah, what what really has come is. what has come out of this uh, about uh, Jennifer Schluga and and the other lady? Uh, besides that, how have they moved on in life? How have they dealt with it? Jennifer went um, uh, left the National Guard, uh, went to college, uh, and discovered that uh, she'd always been an A student. Uh, now she she couldn't handle it. She was. Uh, uh, she was flunking. Uh, she was sleeping all day. Uh, she said she went to one class, uh, and one of the students complained about a bad grade she got on a on an exam, and said, "I feel like I've been raped." And Jennifer said, "I wanted to jump over the desk and scream at her. What do you mean raped? Did it really hurt? Did you feel out of control? Did you have no control over anything?" And at that point, she realized that uh, she was really suffering, and so she went in uh, and uh, actually went to Thor Ringler's program and uh, talked with Thor about what she had been through. And that became her form of therapy. Uh, She's now a a counselor, and she's dealing, uh, she estimates that 90% of her caseload uh, deals with MST. Wow. But... uh, she was able through therapy and and uh, uh, and by writing about what she'd been through and by helping others. Uh, she's she's uh, a strong, confident uh, young lady now. Wow, ninety percent of her workload is MSD. Yeah, that's, that's what incredible. she told me. Yeah. Well, wow. she also said uh, that military sexual trauma really has very little to do with sex. It's all about power. Yeah. And so uh, uh, men abuse women, men abuse other men, women abuse women, women abuse men. It's just whomever, uh, yeah, wherever you can find power, you take it. Because uh, in the military, uh, you don't get empowered very often. Yeah, wow. That is so sad. That is so sad. And you just sometimes wonder, who are the people who actually do the assaulting? And you wonder how much uh, how much did we check on their backgrounds to make sure that they were going to be 
great military people to work with because you're going to have to stand shoulder to shoulder with these people uh, when when push comes to shove. Mm-hmm. You know, can you trust the soldier right next to you? The doctor who uh, was convicted later said uh, that he abused others because he was raped as, the, as a child. Wow. See, that never came up already in the interview. It should have. Yeah, it should have. Eric Newhouse will be right back. Stay tuned, please. What we want to jump on in this second hour is the use of opioids, the pain medication that have really hit the news lately because they seem to be a gateway for people to move more into heroin, both male and female. There is about a 100% increase in men. There's about a 50% increase in women. And uh, that is uh, stunning. And so there is a lot to say about that, both the use of opioids in public, of in the let's call it in the general population, and also specifically in the military. Eric, the use of opioids is something that is getting, luckily, more and more, uh, how you call it, it's mentioned more and more in the news today because we have seen uh, actors and well-known people die of opioid or heroin use. But it is, so it is definitely a growing problem and it's growing especially in the awareness of people But there are a lot of people, and I was reading some of your blogs in West Virginia, where you live, and in Kentucky, it's it's definitely very high. Yeah, it's a huge problem here. Um, We have two drivers of that problem. One is uh, the military. The VA estimates that 50% of the soldiers uh, that come through its doors complain of chronic pain. And almost, well, in the past, almost all of them were prescribed uh, with opioids, which are basically uh, an opium derivative. Opium has been uh, known to be addictive uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But uh, the company that began producing OxyContin, uh, Purdue Pharma, swore that uh, they had a time release, uh, uh, time release, released drug in OxyContin, and that the uh, dosages were so low that it wouldn't become addictive. Um, It did very quickly. Um, In 2007, Purdue Farm and three of its top executives uh, pleaded guilty uh, to misleading regulators and doctors uh, about its uh, potential addictiveness. But by that time, uh, the damage not only was done, but continued to be done. Between 1999 and 2014, prescriptions for OxyContin nearly quadrupled worldwide. Then, starting in about 2012 or 2014, the uh, doctors began to pull back on the number of uh, OxyContin prescriptions that that they were writing, and a lot of people uh, switched to heroin. The uh, uh, mental health folks uh, locally tell me that that uh, about 75% of all the heroin addicts that they deal with locally uh, started out as uh, as people who were addicted to prescription painkillers. Um, mm. I uh, was talking about that to a friend of mine 
uh, a couple of days ago. And he said, yeah, he was very familiar with that problem. Uh, he told me that his sister had had serious gallstone problems. Uh, they used to leave her in such pain that she'd uh, lie in the middle of the floor uh, all hunched up in a kind of a fetal uh, ball and uh, cry and, and vomit. Yeah, the pain was so severe. So they prescribed her OxyContin, and she took a lot of it for a couple of years. Um, then when they began to cut back on those prescriptions, uh, they cut back on hers. And by that time, she had been in such pain for so long that she was, uh, she'd lost her job. Uh, she had four children. The oldest and youngest, uh, she sent to live with one set of grandparents, but the two middle ones were still with her. My friend uh, stopped by to see her one day, uh, discovered that the uh, electricity and the water had both been shut off. The kids were hungry and dirty. Uh, he volunteered to go to the store and buy some food, uh, stock their pantry. She said, no, just give me the money. Well, he wouldn't do that, uh, and so she uh, basically threw him out of the house. He went to Child Protective Services uh, and asked them to take a look and see what was going on. Huh. Uh, and they removed the uh, the other two children and put them with a different set of grandparents. Then uh, uh, she moved out of the house. She wasn't talking to her brother anymore. Yeah. Uh, he went to talk with a couple of her friends, and they they told him that uh, uh, she was living in an abandoned house uh, on Charleston's west side. Oh, boy. Uh, she was now addicted to heroin, uh, and she was working as a prostitute. It is, because especially if you have known this person from a young age and have seen the smiles on their faces and the happiness that they had and how they mm -hmm. enjoyed life, yeah. and then you realize this was not a bad child. This was not somebody no. who was uh, troubled, so to say, no. but no. something, something, all of a sudden, the path took a turn and they were not able to find their way back. You know, and the other thing that goes with that, Eric, is yeah. all the people who stay behind. The the people who yeah. are part of the family who are mm -hmm. looking at this and, and, and wonder what they could have done. And it is, yep. that will be a memory that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And she's still mm -hmm. alive, right? Yep. Well, and, and the four children. Why did mother desert us? Yes. But, yeah. So, yeah, there's that whole family is now scared. There's no question of that. Absolutely. And that is what I sometimes realize. All the soldiers who have been affected by battle and by trauma, it, there are at least four to five other people with those people who are scarred for life. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> and unfortunately, yeah. the... Uh, uh, the vets are particularly immune to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, particularly vulnerable 
to being uh, addicted to painkillers. Uh, half of those vets, uh, when they show up at VA centers, uh, are complaining of chronic pain. Uh, there's also a lot of PTSD out there. Uh, and VA doctors did uh, basically the same thing that uh, uh, that the rest of the medical community did. Uh, they relied on uh, the assurances that opioids weren't uh, uh, addictive. And oddly enough, uh, when in 2007, the company that was making OxyContin admitted that it had lied, everyone just kept on going. Uh, they kept prescribing uh opioids in greater and greater uh, numbers up until um, 2012 or 2014. So that's uh, five or seven years longer, and nothing had changed. The situation uh, really continued to worsen. Interestingly, one of the main drivers uh, of change was the Charleston Gazette here in Charleston, West Virginia. Mm. Uh, a reporter named Eric Ayer began writing about uh, opioids. Uh, he went to court to get uh, uh, records for the number of prescriptions. Uh, he found, for instance, uh, that that uh, oh, a town of 2,700 um, population uh, was being a pharmacy in a town of 2,700 was being shipped uh, something like four and a half to five million opioid doses uh, in a four-year period. Um, when you stop to think about those numbers, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, and when he began writing about it, uh, then the state began to take action, uh, and everybody uh, was alerted to it. Eric won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting oh. on opioids um, just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I was just enormously pleased. It shows what good journalism can do. Uh, it really uh, put a spotlight on the pro on the problem and it forced uh, uh, doctors and regulators uh, to come in and do the jobs that they should have been doing. Yeah, we have Eric Newhouse, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, author. Eric Newhouse on the program today. We are talking about his upcoming book, Faces of Recovery, which is a follow-up on his book, Faces of Combat. And uh, how are we dealing with all the soldiers coming back and how can we help them? Not how are we dealing with it, but how can we help them? How can we understand them better? And not just throwing medication at them, but literally help them to overcome the trauma that they have experienced for those who have had severe trauma. Sometimes, uh, Eric, it, it, it bothers me. Uh, let me say it this way. I just don't know, I don't understand enough what the government is really trying to do when they keep throwing money, billions, I think under Obama in 2012 or so, there was a $123 billion budget for the veterans. I don't always understand. Those are big numbers for regular folks, but I don't really understand what that money is used for. And what bothers me a lot is that organizations or companies such as Purdue Pharma, who has made the OxyContin, uh, and other companies who are making uh, all kinds of drugs, it seems that the it seems that the solution is presented as go to a psychiatrist 
and get some medication to deal with your pain, your tr- physical pain, emotional pain, uh, trauma, uh, disabilities of any shape, way, shape, or form. But there is nothing done, in my opinion, that is either proactive or that really focuses on increasing quality of life. Uh, the quality of life starts with really understanding the person and working with the individual and feeling that the person gets support. It is indeed ridiculous that the veterans need to spend so much time in line somewhere where they are waiting for help. Uh, the waiting lines are long, too long for many of them, and uh, they have to travel very far to find uh, to find support. I mean, even over here in Montana, you know, the VA is very limited, and they're very much uh, there's there's only a few real places where people can go to get the support. And I, it just frustrates me at time that it seems the the um, how do you say it the way that the therapies are presented seem to be very limited in my opinion. And I know we're going to talk about uh, some of the thoughts that you have about therapies and how we can work on that. But what is your do, are you frustrated as well that so much money? I mean, if we talk about one hundred and twenty three billion dollars a year. And even now, President Trump saying we are going to spend a lot more money on the veterans. What? Where is that money specifically going to? Uh, that is a question that I have. And that it doesn't matter who's president. It seems like the presidents are hearing the call from the citizens that something needs to be done to help our veterans better. But at the same time, what are those solutions? Well, let me interject for a moment uh, that... The president is saying, uh, number one, he's going to spend a lot more money on the the military. Uh, And he's also saying that he's going to uh, announce huge tax cuts next week. Uh, That's going to end up with more deficit spending, uh, and it's going to increase interest rates in the same way that Ronald Reagan did. So that's... uh, Anyway, I don't want to. No, I don't no, no but that is, that's interesting. You see, if, if we're sitting, in a way, we're sitting on the outside. So I don't know if, uh, personally, I think that medicine, mm-hmm. Western medicine, is totally overcharging for every service that they provide. Uh, you cannot mm-hmm. tell me that things are as expensive as they are uh, for the service that you're really getting. I mean, $125 for a doctor's visit for 10 minutes, that sounds to me very extreme. And even if you say you can get the money back from the insurance company, so something needs to be done uh, about the the charges that the patients are being told. You know, we're, we're not called patients for nothing. You know, we have to be very patient while the doctor is practicing. And so they haven't figured it out yet. They're still practicing. So why do we pay so much money? It is a uh, something that I... I wonder about, and it seems that the pharmaceutical companies and the, the 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 Western medical machine is getting away with whatever they decide to charge. So if the president is talking about uh, tax cuts, I want to understand what that will be when he comes out with that quote, and I want to understand if uh, who is really going to be affected. Because listen, we can create any kind of uh, nonprofit or we can create programs that to a majority of the people may not seem as a very important program. Uh, It may just be benefiting a very small group of the population. That doesn't mean it's unnecessary, but maybe the funds that the government is throwing at uh, certain programs could be picked up by private donors. Mm -hmm. 
the VA says that uh, as of 2014, uh, it had issued 1.7 million prescriptions for opioids to 443,000 vets to be taken at home. Wow. You stop to think of what that cost. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's never a blue light uh, special uh, with medication, though. No. No. Nope. And, and see, and that is something that bothers me. That is why that is why medication is so expensive. So when they talk about this, I do hope that for our veterans, new programs are going to be looked at. Some of the ones that you are talking about and the, the suggestions that you have that people can do and that money is going to be spent on these programs that are not focusing on the opioid use or the medication use, but literally on the uh, on the benefit of the individual. Well, I can tell you that uh, the local methadone clinic here in Charleston, West Virginia, is getting 50 calls a day oh. from people who are, are seeking relief from addiction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they can't, they don't have the staff or the manpower or the money to, yeah. to help. They can only take one new patient when uh, another patient is discharged. So there's a huge problem out there. Yeah. Well, thanks, Eric. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, uh, more with Eric Newhouse and uh, talk about opioids and possible solutions. Stay tuned, please. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Jacobus. Is that uh, fair to say that uh, uh, with some of the things that you're suggesting, and I'm sure you're going to talk about it in your new book, uh, Faces of Recovery, that will come out very, very soon, that you are giving people insights and, and possible s- solutions that can be used on an individual basis. Yeah, I hope so. Um, one of the things that uh, seems to me very important uh, is that we modify our, our treatment uh, to accommodate moral injury. Yeah, I think the first thing that you need to think about uh, is that if if you have injured someone else, or killed others, or failed to prevent uh, your friends uh, and um, co-workers from being uh, injured or killed, um, the first thing you need to do is seek forgiveness. Uh, The Bible talks about that uh, very specifically in the Lord's Prayer uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It talks about... uh, The Lord's Prayer says, uh, forgive me my trespasses, as I forgive those who trespass against me. Right. You you think about that. Uh, For years I said that uh, just by rote, but then uh, as I began to think about it, I realized that that's actually conditional. Um, It is saying, forgive me please, Lord Jehovah, as I forgive others. And if I don't forgive others, um, maybe you don't forgive me. Um, Right, right. That interpretation was reinforced uh, later in the uh, Gospel of Matthew when it talks about a slave who uh, owed his master a huge amount of money and uh, begged for forgiveness, uh, and the master forgave his debt. Then uh, the slave went out and ran into another slave who owed him a much smaller amount of money. He demanded it. Uh, The second slave uh, couldn't pay, so the first slave uh, had him thrown into a debtor's prison. 
When uh, the owner heard about that, uh, he came to the uh, first slave and said, you wicked slave, uh, you should forgive others as I forgave you. Huh. And he had the first slave thrown into, into the debtor's prison. That's uh, a clear message to me that uh, we need to be forgiving. Yes. Uh, as Daniel said, uh, maybe not so judgmental, but certainly we need to be forgiving. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's... It's a good point. I, I have to tell you that I had a personal experience with uh, forgiving. Uh, that happened about 15 years ago, and I all of a sudden realized that issues that I have had with my father, and he died when I was 17, so I, there has never been, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18, that is such a fragile age for many young men because you are height-wise and strength-wise probably close to your dad, and mm-hmm. at least I was, and um, so physical, you know, getting a slap in the face uh, that he would do at times uh, was not going to work anymore, and I told him that. Yeah. But there was issues with him where he he lost his father when he was only 11, and so he never had a father figure, and so when we have four children and I'm the only son, he never learned how to really raise a son. That's yeah. that's what he feels, and so um, in my opinion, that's what he felt, and he did the best with what he could, and he came out of the Second World War. Uh, he was too young to fight. He was born in um, or 25, so he was would have been 15, 16. I don't know why he ended up. Well, he did the military service, but I don't think that he fought. But uh, what, what, what uh, uh, taught me after all these years, he always pushed on me to be the best, to be the best. And it, and and the way he did that was by telling me all the time I wasn't good enough. And uh, it I wasn't good enough to make him happy. And so that was something that has been with me for most of my life that I always try, I have always replaced people who I have worked for as a, a let's say, a father figure, even though the people were could have been in a team. We could have been could be a captain on a soccer team or something. It was always, I always wanted to hear that the one who was in charge was happy with my performance. And so I became very hard on myself and it was, it, it, uh, certain things in my life have suffered because of it. But it was not until about 15 years ago that I realized one moment that my father would never wake up in the morning with the idea that he was going to make me feel bad he was not getting up with the idea i'm going to hurt my son he just thought he thought that he was stimulating me to be the better person and but i had to go through for me and some people may say well that's a that's a sissy story it doesn't matter because i have been very hard on myself and projects that i undertake and what i do and it is simply i i want to make sure i don't make mistakes because when you make a mistake you're going to get criticized and that was the last thing i want and so my father would always criticize me, and I didn't never heard compliments. You see what I'm saying? So absolutely, yeah. And so you are. Uh, it's not that you're fishing for compliments, but you would like to get a compliment to balance out the criticism. And um, so for me, I, 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 I actually, when I had that, when I had that insight, I actually emotionally completely broke down, and I cried, and I was sitting there and all of a sudden it was like I had all these visions about everybody who has been in charge of me in my life 
that that was a pattern that would come back and that I always felt like I had failed instead of feeling that I had done my very best. So why am I, why am I ashamed of what I've done? I haven't done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, I did a great job. It is just that it was their battle to, uh, to let it go and to be uh, more humble and to understand uh, what needed to be done. So I, I don't, or what needed to be said maybe, but then again, I cannot blame them. It's simply what it is. And so I totally forgave my father and I, I looked and, and I visualized everybody who I have worked for in my life and forgave them because I knew that it was my portrayal upon them that was why I picked up on their energy and why somehow that energy always came out through words of criticism and not compliments. Isn't it amazing how forgiveness is liberating? Oh, phenomenal. I, I think that when you nurse a, a resentment or carry a grudge, that anger owns you. Uh, and when you forgive someone, uh, uh, you are dismissing that anger. It's it's just a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it seems like I, I talked last week to somebody who literally had been physically uh, beaten many, many times by his father when he was young. And I, um, and I go like, well, I didn't have the physical beating, but you realize that your life in a way can be so affected by these type of experiences uh, because it has had a, such an emotional effect on me that has made me a person who was always trying to be, um, uh, you know, the, do the best I can and literally go the extra mile, stay up late, uh, get my work done, stay late at, at work in general, uh, if necessary, and just get the job done. And uh, that affects not just myself, but it has affected my family, my children, because I, it's very hard for me to be satisfied with uh, what I do. And so that can have bigger effects than what you think it would be, simply saying, well, psh, that's how your dad treated you, big deal. But these things can be transferred to anybody who has had an experience like this. If I would have been in the military and I was uh, voted, not voted out, but my year, the year that I was born, didn't have to serve in the Netherlands. They said they had too many soldiers at the time, so they said you don't have to go. And so I never had that type of experience, but you can have that experience in any kind of profession or any direction you take. Uh, you can carry that with you. And I probably would have been one of these soldiers that would go the extra mile and just be, uh, you know, really tough to, uh, you know, do everything I needed to do to the utmost perfection. And uh, that doesn't mean it's better. It just means that that is how would that is how how I have reacted most of my life until I was able to to forgive to forgive my father who started this process, unknown unbeknownst to him. Now you need to take that one step further, yeah, uh, and understand that uh, if you forgive others and God forgives you, you have to forgive yourself, right? Yeah. And uh, that that is uh, a step that a lot of people can't make. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one that uh, you may want to stop and look back on your life uh, and forgive yourself for mm -hmm. some of the things that you've done for some of the uh, hardships you've inflicted uh, on your children, uh, on your family, 
um, just because you felt that you needed to go that uh, that extra mile. Right. That's true. It's a good point. Yeah. So how do you do that, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> I found that one of the one of the best ways is to recognize that you you've done something wrong and to make atonement for it. Uh, that is to say, uh, you have wounded. Uh, uh, the psyche of the earth somehow, uh, and you need to do something that will repair that wound. Um, I think of uh, a whole bunch of people. I've got a friend in uh, uh, in Connecticut uh, who's an ex-Marine, a uh, guy named Martin Chisholm. Martin was, uh, he grew up, uh, he was, uh, I think he had a, black father and a white mother, and uh, so he grew up fighting both uh, blacks and whites. Uh, then he uh, joined the Marine Corps when he got old enough. Uh, uh, when he got back out, uh, he was into uh, alcohol and drugs and, and uh, yeah, spent a number of years uh, yeah, just trying to uh, trying to uh, numb the the hurt that he felt uh, emotionally and psychologically. Yeah. What he ultimately did was uh, he realized that fighting had been uh, his way of of uh, survival, and so he opened a gym for street kids uh, uh-huh. and taught them martial arts, um, but took them under his wing at the same time. Uh, found them jobs, found them uh, ways that they could make some money. Uh, he actually uh, pioneered the uh, program with the uh, local police department, and the police department would send him uh, the troubled kids that they found on the streets, uh, and he'd take them in, teach them how um, to fight, but also uh, to respect their opponent uh, yeah. and to fight within certain discipline their rules. Uh, and it became uh, yeah, a program that the police department was really uh, pleased about because it turned a bunch of kids around. But it also uh, was Martin's way of, of atoning for what he had done in the past. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Very powerful stuff. Uh, caller, thank you so much for joining us today. What is your name, please? How can we help you? Hi, I'm wondering uh, how your uh, guest recommends uh, treating, I guess, the, the moral uh, injury of betrayal by uh, your nation and by the leadership, uh, the politicians uh, that uh, actually carried out the policies in which veterans uh, fought under? That's a really tough question, Uh, and there are an awful lot of soldiers who feel that way. Uh, most of the non-vets that I know and a lot of the Iraqi-Afghan vets uh, feel that they were uh, betrayed by being sent into a, uh, a situation that they had no uh, control over. Uh, ultimately, I think what what they choose to do, and they come back uh, feeling angry, feeling that they uh, were betrayed by their country, feeling that uh, they were essentially disposable soldiers. Uh, some of them call themselves big soldiers, like the big yeah. Um, one of the ways that I think they've been most successful uh, has been to forgive.
with, number one, what was done to them, and two, work to help others. I've got a, a friend locally, uh, yeah, James McCormick, who has, uh, oh, I think at this point he has three bronze stars and a silver star. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, in a lot of action during Desert Storm. Then uh, he was even in even more action in Iraq. Now, when he finally came home, uh, he was hospitalized for a while, uh, and uh, he realized that he needed uh, to forgive and move on. But even more than that, uh, he needed to, to feel better by helping others. And so he bought a uh, a farm in the mountains of West Virginia and began uh, began to farm it, but he he encouraged other vets to join him and they worked together he taught them agricultural skills they made a little bit of money on it but it was more uh, fellowship and helping each other out uh, and it was uh, it's been a very successful program uh, so successful that uh, the state of West Virginia uh named him a uh, a vet outreach officer for the state and it's it's working pretty closely with him uh, to help other vets yeah, that is one way to start. I think it is a it is an ongoing process, Eric. I uh, mm-hmm. forgiveness indeed starts with the self. Uh, we have to, you know, when you can forgive yourself, uh, really learn how to do that. And we're going to continue with that in the next hour. Um, slowly but surely, you start seeing the process and be able to forgive uh, your your superiors and your government your government. But forgiving is not the same as forgetting. And some people say, forgive and forget. You don't have to forget because you don't want to step into the same mistake again. You will be warned, forewarned, I should say. But forgiving is a whole different energy. And we'll continue talking about that, folks, when we come back uh, after the break. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. A topic that so affects millions and millions and millions, as I just mentioned in the last half hour. It's not just the soldier who is returning. It is four, five, six, ten family members of each soldier who are somehow affected emotionally by the trauma that the soldiers are bringing back. And so, and that is not just in this country, folks. That is uh, in every country where wars are being fought and where damage is done on a physical level, but also on an emotional level. Uh, and, and for some, some countries, that is going on for generations. And even in this country, uh, children born from soldiers, from veterans, uh, often find that they are dealing with struggles in their upbringing and struggle in their teenage and uh, life. And as Eric mentioned earlier, the uh, the colonel doctor who was uh, sexually uh, traumatizing a young female uh, soldier himself admitted that he had been sexually assaulted when he was young. So you find out that people sometimes use the military as a way out and sometimes as a structured way to continue certain behavior. And to me, that is a, a fascinating thought. But where do we go from here? The healing always starts in the individual. We can do marches, we can do petitions, we can do uh, we can we can take action in any way, shape, or form. 
but it always starts with the self, the healing. And that is what I like so much about Eric's work that it, 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 it really lines up with what I've been trying to do on this radio show, which is showing you practical solutions, how you can heal parts of yourself that need healing. Because it is not about trying to point a finger at everybody else. I mean, you've heard the expression that when you point at one person, then three fingers are pointing at you. There is time for healing in ourselves. And that is actually should start taking priority. Where do we find true healing? And and when Daniel called earlier, and we discussed it again in the last half hour, working on forgiving other people and realizing that we have to be less judgmental, uh, what do you think that will do? to society, to, uh, you know, what, how that, how that can work, but it starts on an individual basis. And I truly feel that, um, we, we will never stop working on that until the day we die. So why are we on this planet? You know, definitely because there is a lot of work to be done. And, as and again, I cannot judge other people. I, I have observations and I look at things, but I really, can only focus on finding health and healing in myself first. And hopefully that can then radiate away from me and maybe become an inspiration for other people. But I cannot force my opinion, my feeling, my my solutions on anybody else. I can only uh, see if people say, what is it about you? You know, and I'm not talking about me myself, but everybody, all of you individually, you will have people who come up to you and say, you know, there is something special about you, and I want to know more about it. Now you have their ear. Now you can say a few things and see if they're biting to learn how you are living your life. But it always starts with the self. And uh, I, I really appreciate you, Eric, that you are with spending time with us today. I, uh, we, we talked a little bit about atonement, but i like you to explain that a little bit better to our listeners and also the the topic of repenting, please. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jacobus. It's actually afternoon. You know, your last um, caller yes. raised a really interesting question uh, about how how do you get past the sense of betrayal and the sense of cynicism. Um, when you stop to think about it, um, people who are fighting in an unjust war have to do things that, that they... Uh, would not otherwise condone, yeah, and there's really no reason for it. Uh, and that can lead to a mistrust of authority. It can lead to a yes. huge cynicism. Yes. Uh, if you are in a situation where uh, you've done to others um, something that you should not have done, I'm thinking at the moment of a... Uh, I talked about Jennifer Sluga a moment ago. Correct. And Jennifer was telling me about uh, her dealing with a, a former soldier uh, who'd been pretty badly treated by the Iraqis um, and who uh, then managed to get free uh, and treated uh, a number of them pretty badly as well. She had him in therapy, uh, and it didn't do any good just to talk about it because the more he talked about it, the more he, he realized how morally guilty he was. Right. And finally he looked over at her and he said, you know, I'm just a monster, and that's a fact I'm going to have to learn to live with for the rest of my life. Huh. Now, that kind of thing uh, is the the driver uh, uh, that we see in the increasing rates of uh, 
suicide among veterans. Uh, but your uh, caller asked, how do you... Uh, Forgive. Yeah, how do you begin to treat that? And one of the really interesting ways of treating it is animal therapy. Uh, there's a, uh, a former medic uh, named Bill Austin. Uh, he and his wife live up in the uh, Bitterroot Valley. And I suspect he felt guilty because uh, uh, he couldn't save everybody that uh, yeah, that he came in contact with. And so uh, he began to feel that uh, he was a failure. He came back. He had uh, pretty severe PTSD, uh, didn't know what to do about it. And he ended up getting a dog, um, great big uh, Great Dane named uh, JP. <laughs> uh, the dog was uh, was wonderful because... Bill just wanted to isolate himself, uh, sitting uh, in the house, and uh, didn't want to go outside, didn't want to talk to anybody. But uh, JP forced him to go on walks all the time. So they'd go on walks, and people would always stop and talk to the dog. And so the dog became a bridge between Bill and uh, and the rest of society. Hmm. But it was even more than that. Uh, the dog realized uh, when JP was... Uh, anxious and uncomfortable. If, for instance, uh, somebody was approaching him from the rear, um, the dog would step between him and provide a kind of a shelter for uh, for Bill. And even beyond that, uh, he said that uh, he used to get really anxious driving because his short-term memory was not very good and he'd get lost a lot. Uh, and he was really nervous about it. But when J.P. got up in the front seat with him and put his uh, head in Bill's lap, Bill felt at peace. He'd rub the dog and uh, drive. His anxieties disappeared, and you know, the dog trusted him, uh, and he began to trust himself again. Yeah. Same thing happened to uh, a Nam Chopper pilot named Bill Nevin. Bill uh, uh, really didn't trust himself, um, but... He began to work with a horse named Hope, and he said the horse trusted him implicitly, and it began to teach him to trust himself. And he actually uh, started a therapy program for vets um, using equine therapy. Yeah. I think it's called the Sarasota Horse Project, or maybe it's the Sarasota Warrior Project. can't remember which one or the other. But it, it involves uh, the interaction between uh, a traumatized vet uh, and a horse. Yeah. And when the two begin to develop uh, friendship, um, trust, when they begin to bond together, uh, the healing can begin. Right. That's a great point. It's uh, more and more we see not just therapy animals and uh, therapy dogs, we also see dogs that are, you know, acquired because of emotional support to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are people who are trying to get uh, certificates for that or um, what you call it, um, you know, something so they can carry that dog with them, uh, take mm -hmm. the dog with them in a plane or uh, in a restaurant or wherever they go because of some of the trauma that they're feeling and why they feel that dog, the dog is very therapeutic for them. Yeah. Absolutely. The VA will provide service animals uh, if you're disabled, if you're blind, uh, you know, uh, they'll, they'll provide a 
service dog for you. But the dogs go well beyond that, uh, and they are enormous therapy for emotionally wounded people. I, I re- sincerely believe that the VA ought to uh, reconsider that and provide service dogs for um, vets who are severely traumatized uh, and who can find relief with an animal. Mm. Yeah. I uh, was able to watch the movie uh, Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you had a chance to see it yet. Oh, yeah. That's that's so emotionally moving. It is, isn't it? And how this man also has been able to forgive everybody. And then yeah. and then you have Unbroken and and how that man Louis has been able after the war to to go back and to to reconnect with his prison guards and forgive them. And Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. I talked with a uh, uh, an army chaplain uh, who's now uh, now dead, unfortunately, uh, the late Hardy Higgins. And Hardy told me uh, about counseling a nom vet. Uh, this guy had been driving a laundry truck, uh, and uh, somebody kept stealing the uniforms. Um, as he was uh, getting ready ready uh, to deliver the clean uniforms uh, back to the soldiers. And so one day he uh, <clears throat> set up an ambush uh, and uh, jumped to the back of the truck. Uh, and there was a 12-year-old Vietnamese boy, uh, and he hit him uh, with the butt of his rifle and killed him. Wow. And he was... was uh, incapacitated by that for uh, for a number of years afterward. Hardy uh, told me that he got uh, two chairs, and he sat the vet down in one chair and said, I want you to talk to that little boy that you killed. I want you to tell him that you were just a soldier. You were doing your job. Uh, you didn't mean him any harm, didn't mean him any malice. Um, and uh, uh, the vet did that. Uh, he talked to the empty chair for a while and poured his heart out. And then Hardy said to him, now come sit in this other chair and you will be the little boy talking back to the soldier. Uh, and uh, the vet did that. Uh, and Hardy said it was really incredible. You know, the, guy, the guy's voice changed uh, and it became kind of uh, childlike. And he uh, he forgave the soldier for uh, doing what he did. Said that he understood he shouldn't have been stealing uniforms, uh, yeah. and that uh, uh, he comple- completely understood that the soldier was just doing his duty. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hardy said, by the time he uh, he finished that session, both of them were in tears. Yes, of and course. And it was just incredibly therapeutic. Yes. Hmm. See, these are the stories that uh, we keep needing, we, we need to hear. And that's one more reason I'm so grateful that you are writing, that you're blogging, that you are talking to soldiers, that you you have now put it together in a new book, Faces of Recovery. And I really hope that you have a lot of success with the book. I know it is not about the money, it is for you about getting the message out because so many millions in this country have been traumatized by uh by uh, by war by fighting by infighting by uh abuse etc and these stories will highlight that as well as give people a chance to to really recognize 
certain stories in themselves that they haven't been able to talk about and then come out and share with those who need to hear and want to hear. And uh, I think that is a slowly but surely a great healing. My guest, Eric Newhouse, go to ericnewhouse.com on the website and uh, read more about him as well as uh, upcoming events and blogs that he has written. A very, very interesting. There's a large uh, amount of work over there that he that dates back to 2008, his blogging. And so that is a lot of reading material that is very, very inspiring and, and, and heartwarming. So I hope you have a chance, you take to make a chance to now and then go to the website and read another blog and just get more up to date about uh, Eric's uh, thinking and his experience and experiences. And uh, we have another half hour plus to go with Eric. Now, the uh, one of the things with the repenting, uh, Eric, is indeed totally realizing what you have done. Because it is, as I mentioned earlier, we have to be able to call it, uh, give it a name, to identify it. We cannot just only talk about a feeling. We need to be able to put it into words. And then the atonement to make good on what we have done wrong to make it good is a part of the healing process. Uh, writing was mentioned briefly. You write, uh, but it seems to me you are writing more the stories that you hear because you are a journalist and you uh, feel that you are trying to write the stories of those who would probably otherwise would not get heard but the stories are affecting a lot of us, and we can recognize ourselves in many of these stories. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's a great assessment, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I'm trying to talk, I'm trying to amplify the voices of those who would <clears throat> otherwise go unheard. Yeah. But I think also that uh, just telling their stories is therapeutic for vets, because they can get them out, uh, they can help others understand what they've been through, I think of the uh, uh, the Sioux Nation, uh, and one of the things that uh, that it did so very very well was to uh, cleanse its warriors after uh, they came home from battle. Frank Fullscrow, uh, who was the spiritual leader of the uh, uh, of the Sioux for many many years, um, whom I knew. Uh, uh, just briefly in the Dakotas in the 1970s, um, talks about how important it is uh, when a warrior comes back from battle. Uh, the tribal elders uh, will take him into a sweat lodge and they'll all have a, 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 a therapeutic sweat. Then they'll talk uh, and they'll just talk about what he what he did, what he went through. They'll talk about his fears uh, and he will he will gradually come to terms with himself um, uh, and come to a sense of peace. We don't do that in America. We just send people into war, and then when they come home, uh, we expect them to you know, switch out of a uniform, switch into a business suit, uh, and be at work the next day at 9 o'clock as yeah. though nothing happened. Yeah. Um, we need to be talking to our warriors uh, about what has happened to them, about what changes uh uh, combat made in their lives uh, and we need to make an effort to understand it. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is uh, it's an ongoing process, but uh, you are you're absolutely right. I've been starting to enjoy this uh, Netflix original series called uh, Longmire, and uh, it's about a sheriff in Wyoming. In uh, Walt Longmire, and he is dealing a lot with the reservations as well. So you get some glimpses inside the uh, the structure inside the, on on the reservations, and would yeah. how how many uh, I- natives feel that they're being treated, even amongst themselves. So it's very interesting that you bring up the Sioux Nation. And uh, uh, but anyway, we're going to take a short break, Eric. And when we come back, folks, we just have a half hour left with Eric Newhouse. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Eric, we have so much more to talk about, and I realize that we have so limited time. Now, one of the things was exercise. You did mention exercise as part of your therapy, and I think that is a very important fact of life. Uh, to be physically active and there are several ways to do that and i i guess when you just say exercise it means different things but for some people it may actually be very wise to either join a class or to maybe get a personal trainer somebody they connect with who can really focus attention on them doing the exercise correctly so that they're not just doing the exercise but they're actually doing something specifically whereby they have a chance to rebuild the body the proper way and to strengthen the body and find balance in their daily activities. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? I agree, Um, but I'd go beyond that. Uh, In the first place, um, alcoholism uh, counselors have a term uh, that they use for uh, former alcoholics uh, who quit drinking but never replaced drinking with anything else. They call them dry drunks. Uh, and uh, what they mean is uh, is that these are guys uh, who go through life without drinking but without doing anything else. Uh, there, there's nothing that gives them pleasure. Uh, and I think the same thing is, uh, is true with vets who are suffering from PTSD. If you forgive yourself, you have to give yourself the, um, the freedom to live a life that's fun and enjoyable and good for you. So I'm thinking not only about classes uh, and about personal trainers, but I'm thinking about doing things uh, in nature that are, uh, uh, that are just full and rich and exciting. Yes. Uh, there is a program up in Missoula called Vets for Extreme Sports. And it basically takes vets um, who, have, uh, who are suffering from PTSD and it sends them down a 20-mile section of the Laksaw River yeah. in uh, nearby Idaho. The uh, Laksaw is just one gorgeous river. It is one big rampaging uh, river with rocks in the middle of it uh, and white water everywhere. There are, I think, 25 class four and five rapids uh, in a 20-mile section of river. And when the vet goes down that, uh, a number of things happen. First of all, uh, he is socializing with other vets. Uh, He's not isolating, uh, and so there is a sense of camaraderie. Second, uh, there is... You've got to work hard to get down that river without um, overturning, and 
you've got to know how to save your fellow vet uh, if he gets swept out of the raft. So you are responsible for uh, taking care of your fellow vet, uh, and you also know that he's going to take care of you. A third, uh, the river is enormously powerful, and uh, and yet there is no uh, animosity in it. Uh, it just is a force of nature uh, and something that to be highly appreciated. Yeah. Um, finally, there is uh, the whole concept of neuroplasticity, which I think we talked about a moment ago. Yes. That that is that uh, you can forge new memories that overlay some of the uh, traumatic memories from combat and uh, uh, dissipate some of those memories at the same time. So it's a, it's a wonderfully therapeutic program. I floated Laksaw uh, some years ago and uh, remember vividly that uh, my friend Jim Watts, uh, who was sitting uh, in the seat directly in front of me, uh, got swept overboard. Oh. And I, we were in raging, raging water then, uh, and I stood up. I put a paddle out toward him. He grabbed it. Uh, I pulled him into the edge of the raft. Then I dropped the uh, the oar. Uh, I reached down. I grabbed both of his uh, the straps of his life, life preserver, um, pulled him up as high as I could get him, and then fell backwards into the raft, uh, bringing him in on top of me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the kind of memory that uh, uh, I have that's... Uh, just a wonderful memory, and I, I can imagine a vet doing that uh, and feeling just great about himself uh, and uh, about his day on the river. And, and uh, in addition to that, uh, uh, we are discovering that that kind of energy, uh, that kind of exercise, uh, creates uh, uh, the growth of neurons uh, of brain cells yeah, and uh, scientists are now discovering that, that that is one of the key ways of reducing anxiety they did an, an experiment with mice D- does that also have to do with the neuroplasticity that we talked about in the previous show um, <clears throat> that it helps to regrow new neurons yeah um, absolutely yeah. Uh, that has to do with new, uh, new uh, with neuroplasticity, uh, but it also uh, has to do just with creating new neurons. Uh, they did a uh, an experiment with mice. Um, they got two groups of mice, uh, put them in uh, two little rooms. Uh, uh, each of them got a mild uh, jolt of electricity. Uh, it wasn't anything extreme. It just was unpleasant. Uh, then the second time they put the mice uh, in the room, uh, uh, they all uh, were real anxious. They were waiting for the next shock to come. Um, but in the interim, they put, um, yeah, after the second uh, stay in the room, they put half the group of uh, mice through a treadmill, and they ran them on the treadmill for uh, until they were all exhausted. <laughs> um, after that, when they put uh, the two groups of mice in, in the room, the one group that had been on the treadmill realized that there was no shock and there was no problem, uh, and they became basically normalized. Huh. The group that hadn't uh, been on the treadmill uh, was still fear- fearful of getting a shock. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You know, so, I had a... Uh, go ahead, yes. Yeah, so exercise is really important, uh, and there are some great ways of doing it. Um, there is... Uh, the VA is actually <clears throat> sponsoring uh, whitewater kayaking in North Carolina, and I talked to some vets there. Uh, you know, one gal, Tony Taylor, told me that uh, the kayaking program saved her life. She's an amazing lady because... Uh, she saw videos of the uh, vets kayaking and decided that it looked like so much fun she wanted to try it, but she didn't know how to swim. So she took kayaking classes and swimming lessons at the same time Yeah, and went out uh, in the river and just developed really a new life, a new uh, fellowship with her fellow vets uh, and thought it was uh, absolutely incredible. Yeah. There are also, there are also yeah. a lot of people like to go fishing. You learn oh, how to yeah. fish. You know, you know there are a few veteran organizations, uh, Real for Recovery, and um, you know some other ones that are uh, into the fishing sports to help Montanans when they come back to Montana to veterans who come to Montana to go to the Yellowstone River or the Gallatin River, Madison River, Missouri River, and and simply uh, have a a, a blast. Actually, you've got a local program there. Yeah. Uh, Warriors in Quiet Waters. Correct. And uh, Eric Hastings is uh, a huge proponent uh, of taking vets out and allowing them to fish uh, and be active. Uh, and he said it's it's really amazing because after an active day on the water uh, with the sun beating down on you and the waves rocking and... and uh, uh, Vets come back home again, and they they may actually sleep for the first time, get a solid night's sleep for the first time in months. Yeah, yeah, and and they have the camaraderie that they are together, yep. uh, challenging the water, so to say, in another way. You yep. have to be totally focused the whole time on uh, making sure you do everything right because there is a right and a wrong way to fish. But mm -hmm. at the same time, even if you cannot learn that and you're just standing in the water, uh, you are you have the camaraderie with other vets. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's an incredible program. Yeah, there's also uh, a program called Warrior Hike, uh, where vets uh, start out in uh, in Georgia and follow the Appalachian trails uh, all the way north to Maine. Okay. Um, they're basically uh, following the. Uh, following spring to summer uh, and then into uh, fall in Maine. Uh -huh. And uh, by the time, you know, you're, you're out there walking all the time, you're exhausted, you're talking to uh, your fellow vets. Uh, even better than that, Warrior Hike does a, uh, does a, a lot of work with volunteers who, uh, who will go in, uh, pick up vets at a trailhead, take them into town, uh, give them a nice, community dinner uh, and everybody talks about what they're doing how they're doing it why they're doing it yeah. uh, then they take them back out uh, drop them at the trailhead uh, the vets go back get in their tents and uh, head back down the trail the next day yeah i very much appreciate folks all of you listening i hope you are enjoying the program uh, we're not getting many calls today but that's quite all right uh, sometimes this is something that um that is important to hear the message 
And sometimes you kick back and listen, and you participate by listening, not by calling. And it's quite all right. I I um, oh, I I just get a message from Tom. We're talking about emails. Uh, Tom Eaglehoff says he is not in this weekend, so he will not be on the program today. There is um, uh, so he will not be on the show. He will not do his open for business show today. Any case, uh, you know, one of the things that I that I would kind of uh, like to talk about, uh, Eric, is the other options that we have as well. And because I am in the dietary supplement industry, but also because I've talked to so many people over the years, there are things that can be done nutritionally, either in a dietary setting as well as in a dietary supplement setting that may help the acceleration of healing. Uh, there has been research, great research done on people with trauma and depression and taking them, uh, t- putting them on a gluten-free diet. And even if you do that for a short period of time, even if you start already with two weeks, one week, two weeks, the, you may actually see differences. You may actually see differences in behavior. There is something about the gluten that can affect the brain chemistry in a way that it confuses the brain, that it depresses the brain, that it causes anxiety. I'm not saying that this goes for everybody. All I'm saying is there are people, and more and more are coming out, who are saying that since they have been on uh, on a gluten-free diet, they have less aches and pains, less inflammation, less inflammation in the brain. They have more clarity as they are thinking. Uh, the other thing is when you are not eating gluten, uh, what are some of the things that you could be eating? And so there is the uh, the need for the brain to get fats to help heal the brain. And when soldiers are out and about uh, in in service, they do not always get the best food. And there is comfort food for them, and they're young, and so they can handle a lot. But at the same time, they still need good nutrients and and healthy fats such as omega-3 fats uh, the higher epa for depression uh, epa is one of the fats we find in omega-3 the research shows that if you take 1500 milligrams and more of epa high quality epa in the fish oil so you have to look at the label how many capsules or teaspoons that is then that should start a healing process in the brain we have seen improvements with coconut oil for people with dementia and Alzheimer's, but also uh, the reason why we mention that in this on this topic is because it will help start healing the brain. We are seeing uh, results from uh, taking supplements such as Saint John's Wort, which was became popular in the mid nineties. Uh, it was research was done that if you take nine hundred milligrams at a concentrate, point three percent hypericin which is the active component, that it would have definite results in people from mild to moderate depression. Now, my thinking has always been that if you have mild to moderate depression, would it help put a little bit of a dent? So it would have a similar effect of in mild to moderate depression that Prozac and some of the other antidepressants have. So similar results, if not even a little bit better. So then I wonder what that amount would do to somebody who actually has more severe depression, if it could help them anyway. Would it help these people in general 
to 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 find some healing we have seen uh, improvement with the essential oils such as lavender peppermint lemon those are very soothing and nourishing for the brain mandarin orange oil put them in a diffuser at night when you go to bed it is soothing the mind calming the mind and it will help the the, the vets to find a deeper sleep and more rest then there is lemon balm that you can take in a capsule form that has shown to really calm the mind as well, lemon balm. And uh, besides that, we have things like um, certain amino acids. So I find that if uh, uh, people in general focus more on the need for amino acids to nourish the cells, and we have 75 trillion cells in our body, so every cell needs nourishment giving the body more protein and more fat will really help my my rule of thumb uh, is to not my rule but my my suggestion is that when you are not active if you are just don't have the capability to exercise either because you're in a wheelchair or because you are not able to work out or you have no desire to work out you still would you take your ideal weight so not the way that you are but you take your ideal weight and use 50% of that weight in grams of protein per day. So if ideal weight is 180, then you need at least 90 grams of protein per day. If you get that in and you take your fats, your coconut, your fish, your flax, your olive oil, your avocados and avocado oil, a little bit of walnuts and macadamia and pistachios, which happen to be non-inflammatory nuts and seeds, you will start noticing a difference for many people within 24 to 48 hours. They literally can tell the difference in the energy and slowly but surely the craving for sugars go away. And, and one of the reasons why we eat so many sugars is because we are trying to feed the brain with sugar. Uh, to handle stress because of the buildup of adrenaline and cortisol, we are we are getting this tremendous craving for sugar to overcome the pain that we feel in our head. And so there is something that we need to do. The head is always, I consider the head the coach, Eric, and I consider the body the athlete. And the coach is always talking to us, but the body cannot always keep up. And that's why we're malnourishing the body because the brain says, keep going, keep going, no pain, no gain. You know, come on, don't be a sissy, keep going. We are, the mind is always telling us something. So we have to nourish the brain, We have, but we definitely have to nourish the body with the right proper nutrients so that we have losing the aches and pains, that we are improving on how we feel, and that we have better energy and therefore sleep better at night. And the research done by a Dr. Michael Platt, a medical doctor who has practiced for 40 years, on the hormone progesterone for people with PTSD and autism, as well as depression, anxiety, road rage, uh, these kind of uh, symptoms have seen very quick results. I have seen with patients of clients over the last few years working with higher progesterone levels to two, uh, 150 to 200 milligrams every day, men, women, even children has shown an improvement in their calming the in them calming the mind, calming the brain. And uh, uh, literally also with PTSD people, they have seen a difference within 24 to 48 hours. 
And so I highly recommend, uh, maybe you and I should have a longer talk about it at some point, maybe off the air, but I wanted to throw that in that there are other things that we can do that can that are nourishments for the body so when the body has been under so much trauma we eat differently it's very hard for us to think about diet but if we are able to eat more proteins and fats our craving naturally goes away for the carbohydrates and therefore we are finding more healing and calm in the body and in the mind have you heard anything about that eric well i just went to my own uh, supplement counter and picked up my fish oil and discovered I've only got 1,200 mg, so I'm going to have to get a different No, you oil. have to turn it around, and you have to look at uh, the, the word supplement facts and then turn uh, then look below the word supplement facts. It will say serving size, and I don't know if that is two capsules or one capsule. What do you have? <clears throat> I've got a, one a day, and it's uh, 1,200 mgs. So. Yeah, but it is total. Well, how much EPA is that? That I don't know. I'll yeah, look, look, look down the that. list. Look down, mm-hmm. look down the label. It will tell you EPA. Okay. Well, I will do that. Yeah, do I that. I can also tell you that uh, I am using a lot of lemons in my tea <laughs> and some mint. Good. And that's all good. <laughs> that's... And I'm growing my own, not not lemons, but growing my own mint. Yeah. It's uh, it's all important, and that's why I'm so grateful for the continuous research that goes out, and I highly recommend that if you are a veteran, um, don't feel obligated, but let me come into the store, come to Gesundheit Nutrition Center, and, and just call 585-4668, 585-4668. Just set up an appointment, and, and, and let me explain it to you. I write it on a piece of paper, and then when you go home, you have something to work with, because a lot of us have the medicine already in our house and the medicine is, starts always with diet. And when we, when we can fix the diet, we can already see improvements. The supplements will help to accelerate that. And uh, to me, that is, a, that is a very important aspect. But um, anyway, I thought I want to throw that in, Eric. I, it, 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 it just complements some of the things that you have been talking about today. Absolutely. And I uh, look forward to seeing you again in Great Falls in a month. Yeah, I am uh, doing my utmost to put that on my schedule so that I will be there and and, and sit in the lecture and, and hear you speak and, and give you a big hug, big Montana hug. That sounds great. Okay, Eric. I wish you all the best, and thanks so much for spending your time with us today. It's been, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I hope that uh, we are continuing this series with you when more news is coming out and especially when the book is coming out too. I like to read it and then uh, we can discuss that further. And, that sounds uh, great. I look forward to that. Thank you, Eric. All the best. And folks, uh, by all means, uh, go to ericnewhouse.com and we are off the air. We'll talk to you next week, Saturday from 8 to 11. See you then. Activating the unused portion of your brain. Duh. Winning. Gesundheit with Jacobus every Saturday morning. Duh.